fellowship is. I know how we kind of roll, so I think people kind of be rolling on in as we kind of get going. Um, it might get a little warm in here, so we'll open the door, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, but my name is Joseph Mulligan. Uh, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm going to be leading the class today on mental health. The title actually is Journey On. I want to encompass the, the theme of the conference, Journey On Towards Optimizing Mental Health. And first off, I just want to say thank you for coming today. I know you have a couple different choices in terms of what classes you go to. And so this is obviously one that, you know, we're at, we're at capacity in this room. So we're kind of going to be a standing room only. Brothers, if you see a sister standing, please uh, give her a seat. And um, we're going to kind of go about 40, 45 minutes today. And then I'd like to leave like 10, 15 minutes at the end for any questions and answers. And um, for me personally, this is a very interesting topic. For, obviously for this conference, it's something that uh, people have a vested interest in. Um, I want to thank Dennis for inviting me to speak and grateful to be a part of the conference. And um, I'll talk more about my uh, involvement with the Edge a little bit later on and uh, what mental health means to me. But I have a scripture there. You might not be able to see it. John 10.10. 10. It says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. Okay, and so in my opinion, having optimal mental health is part of living life to the full. I believe it's also part of uh, the scriptures in Matthew 22 when Jesus talks about the greatest commandment and loving God with all of his mind. Okay, so mental health isn't just about the mind, but it is a big part of it. And so we'll talk a lot about that today and um, move on to the next slide. So you're on a journey, right? And I don't know, I haven't listened to the other uh, the other lessons and the other classes, so I don't know what the content has been. But when I looked at the lesson topics, I felt like, wow, these are some challenging areas. And I really appreciated, like, the first one was the first class, Stop the Weirdness. So, so immediately, you're kind of just getting into the meat and potatoes of, like, how are we functioning as individuals? How are we functioning as a, in a group, as a ministry? as a church. So I love that idea. And we are on a journey. Matthew 7, I'll read it. It says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the way that leads to life. And only a few find it. I like this picture personally because I love to go hiking. I love to go backpacking. It's part of my mental health plan. Um, And I'll We'll talk about that in more detail kind of at the end of the class. Because I love being outdoors. Uh, when I lived in San Diego, I love to surf. I surfed four or five days a week. And it was just part of me connecting with God. And that was that was me and nature, me and creation. And so now in Georgia, I've kind of found an, another way to connect with God and to be out, be outside, uh, just to be in, in God's, uh, God's creation. But I like the pathway because we are in a narrow path. You're, According to the word, we're either on the broad path or the narrow path. And so we can easily get disillusioned when being on the narrow path, being deceived by the world, falling into problem areas and, and start to more drift. 
towards that wider path. And so one of my goals today, hopefully, is to help you guys to see how optimizing your mental health can help you on your journey on the narrow way. Amen? Amen. Okay. So the first slide out of Woman in the Mountains. Now we're at the sandy beaches of the South Pacific. Hopefully, I mean, I'd love to go to the South Pacific one day. That's one of my dream trips. But um, I want to just open it up, kind of an icebreaker. We have a large groups today. So one thing I wanted to do to just kind of help us get better acquainted with maybe why some of us are here today uh, versus others, and also dispel some notions of, of preconceived ideas. We all come in to this room, we all come into any given environment with preconceived ideas. And so what I would like to do is just, if you can give me one word responses as to what brought you here today, and just, you can just start, you know, shouting out. Family. Family. Curiosity. Curiosity. Mm-hmm. That's great. Hope. Oh. Okay. Now there's So a lot of uh, what I would describe as like solution-focused words. I didn't hear a whole lot of problem areas, which is encouraging, because as a social worker, you know, I'm coming from a, a solution-focused perspective. And as social workers, we try to look at people in terms of uh, strengths and not necessarily problems. Uh, I've worked in a lot of settings, a lot of medical settings, in the mental health um, uh, role, and we typically defer to what's known as the medical model, where the doctor is at the hierarchy of the providers, and we kind of look at things in terms of problem set, and we don't necessarily look at what does this person bring to the table, what, what are their strengths, how are they going to help themselves, and so I love that, that people are very solution-focused and just the things that I've heard. Um, disclaimer. So there's actually a few disclaimers. Um, we're going to talk about some things that you know might strike a nerve, maybe personally. Uh, we're not going to really delve into any specific topic too deep. So just to put that out there, we're going to kind of you know keep it surface level because this is a really broad topic, guys. But I do want to cover some things that I think are going to you know, hopefully catch people's interest. So. Um, Expect, you know, maybe to feel uncomfortable, but maybe to feel uncomfortable because of some, like I said, preconceived ideas that you might come into the room with about, you know, what is mental health, what defines mental health, do we define mental health as mental illness or mental disorders? When I think about a specific mental disorder, do I have a particular idea of what that is? And so I want to just try to challenge you guys or, or encourage you to challenge yourselves to think outside the box a little bit. Try to come out of this room with some new ideas, or at least one, that challenges your preconceived idea about mental health. Um, this is not a, I'm not gonna outline a, a plan either, like a wellness plan to, to fix any particular issue. That's not how you know mental health works. So you're not gonna come out of here you know, with a regimented step one, step two, this is what I need to do. Um, nor are you going to be able to come out 
mental health experts and be able to diagnose your, your brother or sister or whatever else. You know, sometimes we can want to do that, and uh, sometimes we do that to ourselves. You know, people can talk about, oh, I'm so OCD or, um, you know, I'm really bipolar or, you know, just things that people don't maybe quite have an understanding of when apply labels uh, to themselves. And um, hopefully we won't do that. And um, so, uh, who are the Mulligans? Uh, these are my daughters, Elin and Emmy. Uh, they're six and three. Uh, they're uh, really fun uh, right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sometimes not so much. Uh, my wife Vanessa and I—we've been a part of uh, the church here at North River for uh, nine years and uh, eleven years, respectively. Uh, my wife Vanessa moved here from Colorado some time ago, and then I came here back in 2009. We've been married for eight and a half years, and uh, we were actually a part of the Edge Ministry when uh, when I we first moved out here. So the Edge Ministry has a place in my heart. We've served in the Edge in different ways, and um, I can just say from that personal perspective, uh, it was a time of uh, faith building. It was also a time of challenging moments. So. I just want to encourage you guys, uh, wherever God's taking you on your journey, uh, just know that as a fellowship that we are here together, and um, I'm grateful to be here today. Uh, I've worked as a clinical social worker for nine years. I have experience in uh, inpatient stabilization units, uh, drug treatment facilities. Um, I worked four years at one of the state hospitals in Georgia where we have known uh, as forensic units where people who have severe mental illness, but who are also caught up in the legal system, are either there before they go to court or have actually been adjudicated uh, due to their mental illness and are in treatment versus prison. And so I've seen a lot of different things, a lot of different presentations in terms of mental health, mental health problems, and also the way people approach treatment. Uh, right now, I work for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, if you're a veteran, thank you. And if you know a veteran, please grab onto them and give them a hug and thank them because veterans experience a lot of hardship in a lot of different ways. So um, I definitely have a heart for serving the veterans. I've been there two and a half years uh, in our healthcare for homeless veterans program. We uh, house over 1,900 veterans in the Atlanta area with HUD. HUD has housing vouchers, we provide case management, so we uh, provide treatment to those men and women as well. And that's uh, very challenging, uh, sometimes more with my coworkers than with the clients. So we'll talk about workplace mental health too, and how to kind of optimize mental health in the workplace, because sometimes those aren't healthy environments, right? Okay. Mental health, what comes to mind? Uh, we have some one word answers. Is there anything else that didn't get shared that you might think of when you think of mental health? So, mental health includes um, emotional, psychological, social well being. Uh, it has to do with our emotions, the way we think, how we act, how we handle stress. How we interact with others and it really crosses the lifespan. So it starts, you know, when you're young, uh, 
infancy in some cases. Uh, there's a lot of uh, research done with kids who suffer from insecure attachment, kids who grew up in um, like the former Eastern Soviet bloc, where the government, basically the Soviet government, promoted just childbirth for the state, basically. And a lot of these kids ended up in these facilities where they were in these really small cribs. They were getting, you know, physical affection, attention from a caregiver. And they look at those kids, you know, 10, 12 years down the road, and they see all the challenges that they're experiencing because they didn't attach appropriately to a caregiver. And so that's an example of how a mental health problem can you know, translate from you know, early on in life into, you know, adolescence or adulthood. <laughs> Even when those kids become parents and they have children, some of them are going to have problems with attachment of their own kids. And so that's just one example of how mental health kind of spans life. Um, it's multi-layered. And mental health is multi-layered. So you look at that. I don't know how well you can see all the different words, um, but it's not just about the mind. Uh, there's a lot of things going on. Think of like mental disorders. Some of the causes of mental disorders, you get into a lot of different reasons for why people suffer with different uh, ailments. And, you know, it could be anything from like uh, drug induced psychosis to having some type of uh, chemical imbalance that's causing someone to experience clinical depression or what we would uh, commonly describe it as major depression. Uh, It could be societal factors. So, the U.S., and we'll talk about this a little bit more, the U.S. is uh, number one problem is anxiety. So culturally, we have an issue with anxiety. You know, not every culture across the world has anxiety as their number one problem. So when you look at it, it's multi-layered. You might think of it in terms of, you know, I heard people talking about wellness, um, coping, these are positive words, inclusion. Um, then you get some problem areas. So actually, insufficient uh, behavioral problems, atypical. That might be some of my uh, You also might think of uh, mental illness when you think of mental health. You might think the straight up mental illness, and you don't really think of the the health side. And so. Some of those words, you know, might jump out at you. PTSD, that's something that we're seeing more prevalence of in terms of people being diagnosed with it, mainly because we're having a greater understanding of what trauma is and learning more of just the wide effects of trauma <laughs> and that it's not just, um, you know, one thing or another, but it can be many different things. Uh, schizophrenia. You know, 1% of the population in the U.S. suffers from schizophrenia. Um, a lot of those individuals function at a very high level. You, know, you wouldn't even know they have schizophrenia. They take medications at a low dosage. They have jobs. They have connections. They have family. They have a social network. Uh, but they suffer from schizophrenia. <coughs> but as we'll talk about a little bit more, is like the media, movies, TV, can kind of paint this picture of So maybe when you think of mental health, you just 
get a smile on your face and you just kind of, you know, keep it moving down the road. And, you know, to you, in your personality construct, you're a very optimistic person and things just kind of bounce off of you. And in some ways that can be healthy. In other ways you can be on the extreme of an optimist and not really see things clearly with little light. Optimists, though, however, are found to have better health outcomes long-term over the course of the lifespan. Uh, Mood-wise, they generally do better. Um, I kind of like this guy, too, because I think our ears are a little similar. <laughs> I've got some kind of wrinkle marks. I can just kind of see that coming in my old age, so um, I like him for that as well. But, you know, personality is a big part of of mental health and optimizing mental health and how we interact with people. Um, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to really delve into personality a whole lot today. But if I would leave you with something with personality and temperament, it would be to you know know yourself. You know know your know what you're you're prone to. My wife and I would. This was a common point of argument for us in the early part of our marriage. If you know my wife, you know she's very outgoing, and loves to laugh, just very, you grab your arm and just, how ah, yeah. And I am not like that. You know, I, I, I love people, but I'm not quite there. And so we actually, you know, help each other, but she had to help me to kind of see some things in my personality and the way I interact with people. And like sometimes it put people off. You know, and I don't even feel like I'm doing it. I'm just kind of standing there and you know, why are you bothering me? I'm not doing anything here. I'm just present. And so, but as I start to know that about myself, I can start to understand, okay, I'm affecting people. You know, I'm affecting people in a way that's not really constructive and helping to build them up or helping me to connect with them. So you don't got to try to figure out everyone's personality. You know, that's going to drive you uh, you know, to a place you don't want to be. But um, know yourself and know some of the people around you. You know, the people who are close to you, your roommates, your siblings, your parents. Um, the better you know yourself and them in that regard, the better you're going to be able to connect with them. And the better you're going to be able to interact with them and have more efficient, healthy communication with them. All right. Uh, ten points if you know who that is. <laughs> Mental health in the U.S. So uh, I thought this stat was real interesting. Half of Americans living with a mental illness received treatment in the previous year, which means the other half didn't. So we see this a lot at, at the VA. We'll have vets go into our psychiatric unit and patients in the hospital. Um, they have some serious issues going on. Create a plan as part of their discharge and come out zero five. And our case managers are there, they're working with them, but there's either a lack of insight or a lack of motivation or a fear or anxiety or something that's keeping them from engaging with treatment. So from the VA side, and I love I love sharing about the VA because mostly people hear bad stuff about it, but being on the inside, I know that we're doing a lot of great stuff. I know there's supports there, but that's not necessarily the case for everyone else. 
So if you look at like managed care plans, uh, insurance plans, not all of them are really geared towards providing great mental health services. So you might have like, um, I don't know what it is now, maybe 10 or 12 sessions annually that are paid for by insurance. But if you're coming out of the hospital and you need to see a therapist once a week or next eight weeks, you just killed 75% of your, your insurance benefits. So that's not good. Um, in our governor's race uh, recently, if you're from Georgia, one of the candidates was really big on promoting an expansion of mental health services. And so that really wasn't spoken a lot about. It was just kind of something that was there. She really promoted it. Um, but in terms of talking points, it just isn't something that was out there. And that kind of goes to... I would say, you know, it being perceived as an individual problem and part of the stigma of mental illness in our culture. And so every culture has some degree of stigma um, towards mental illness. I've had the, the privilege of being able to travel, you know, quite a bit to <coughs> some developed Western Europe, European nations but also to like, India, Mexico. We just got back from a trip in Guatemala back in August where we did some work down there. Um, medical brigade, we did some mental health work down there. And guys, I just, I gotta tell you, we got it pretty good here in terms of global, you know, global care, global service, stigma of mental illness. I could tell when I, we were driving around in Guatemala that I could see the homeless people, and there was only a few of them that would, you could tell they were living in the streets of Christ, and one of them was actually severely mentally and I knew they had nowhere to go. A lot of the people that I, actually a couple of the people that I had counseled there needed some acute mental health care, and they just couldn't get it. They had to drive 30 miles to go get it, and even then we were going to service. So, in terms of globally, I think sometimes we can talk about our problems, and we do have many of them, but um, services are out there, and they're available. And we'll be talking more about you know, access later. Um, this last one. Uh, historically, people have kind of seen mental illness as a moral failing, or someone's inability to adapt to their, their surroundings or circumstances. Uh, it wasn't until 1950, around 1950, where the first diagnostic uh, statistical manual on mental disorders was created. And that was where it kind of outlined in detail what individual mental health disorders were. And I mean, that was only 70 years ago. So if you think about it, uh, you know, in terms of long-term time, we're kind of still figuring out a lot of stuff. Uh, mental health in the media. Can you think of some movies or TV shows that have depicted mental health problems? A Beautiful Mind. Yeah, so that was Dr. Nash, right? He had schizophrenia. So some of that was some of that was accurate. Some of it not so much. Okay, so the word crazy, right? <laughs> 
Silver Linings Playbook talked about bipolar disorder. The problem with Silver Linings Playbook is that at the end of the Silver Linings Playbook, it kind of was like, oh, your, your mental health problem can be cured when you jump into this relationship. And you guys can kind of fix each other's problems. And it just kind of dismissed kind of the long-term impact of it. Um, and so, and then the crazy ex-girlfriend, so that's stigma too, right? Like, that we're crazy. I mean, even I can catch myself sometimes saying that. Not, so I almost said it earlier. I don't know if you picked on that. You picked up on that. I said, oh, you're driving crazy. And so it's kind of things like that where you got to really be mindful in spite of like our words and how powerful they can be and how they can impact other people. Um, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest with Jack Nicholson. Uh, that was a pretty gnarly movie, right? So he got a lobotomy at the end of that movie. Um, and they used to do that. Um, they don't do that anymore, thankfully. Um, but there were some things that were going on with trying to treat them just because people just didn't know how to treat them. And mental health in the legal system. Mental illness has been criminalized in our society. Um, see, I saw it a lot when I worked at Georgia Regional Hospital in Atlanta. So we have three forensic units there. And what happens is someone will get arrested, they'll typically be psychotic, and they won't be competent to stand trial. It's a legal term. They won't be competent to stand trial, which means they can't go in front of a courtroom and understand the reality of the mindset and what they're facing. Either. So they then come over to our hospital, get treated, typically with some type of psychotropic medication, and then we would actually teach them in classes about court stuff. And then once they're evaluated, they go back to court and face their charge. And depending on what their mental state was during the commission of the crime, determines on the outcome of the charge. So if someone was, you know, delusionally compelled during the course of the crime, they couldn't differentiate right from wrong, they would be found not guilty by reason of insanity. They'd come over to the hospital, they'd stay there, and then they'd have a regimented discharge plan that was highly structured and supervised, and then ultimately go back into society. Um, but you would see people, I mean, these, these people are typically marginalized. Um, they don't have a lot of supports. They've been in and out of the hospital. I mean, I've seen people over 90, 100 times in the hospital, you know, 42 years ago. And they had something wrong with and a lot of that has to do with how we treat mental illness. Now, uh, we have a lot of uh, mental health treatment courts that are based for, around this county. And there's also a drug treatment court, there's a veterans treatment court. And so the idea is to focus on recovery instead of um, you know, punishment. And so I am encouraged by that. But uh, we got a lot to grow in. A bit of a transition. So, what do you think the effects of social media are on your mental health? <laughs> so I'm kind of getting some drones and some. <laughs> okay. Sorry, we got a couple comments. Go ahead. Most people only broadcast. 
So it does, uh, I'm sorry, you got to comment. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, even physiologically, just the screen time, day in and day out, you wake up, you look at it. Um, it's suggested, I'm sure you know, that you should turn off any device in the hour or go to sleep, so that you turn Yeah, we're going to talk about sleep hygiene, yeah. actually. Mm -hmm. Like that, just raising your anxiety level, you know, before you go time can lead to depression right? Yeah. Yep, great point. And so, yeah, kids, uh, high school kids, their front of their brain's not fully developed yet. So you get, so you hit 25, the front of your brain, the most, well, some people say the most critical part of your brain that helps you to analyze and think critically is not fully developed yet. That's why there's a big, you know, uh, opposition to using drugs for teenagers and young adults. Because those teenagers that can't critically think through and problem solve the way they don't out of some of the situations. Yeah, you mentioned like the highlight reel. They call that a highlight reel. When people just kind of promote the good and you know, you're sitting in your pajamas eating frozen waffles and <laughs> how come I can't do that, you know? Um, so there's actually quite, there, there's a few studies in their, their recent, you can see 2018, 2018. So um, the top one talked about, they had two groups, one that restricted its use of social media, the other that did not. The one that restricted it saw significant reductions in loneliness and depression over a three week period. So three weeks, that's encouraging to me because that's a quick turnaround. You know, in terms of implementing an intervention and seeing an outcome, a favorable outcome. Uh, the next one talks about uh, young adult women. Body image is negatively affected by viewing attractive women's photos on social media. And they found also that uh, women they didn't know, they were more likely to be affected than the ones that they did, which is interesting. And then again, you have that 14 to 24 year old age group, uh, exacerbated anxiety and depression, deprived them of sleep, uh, exposed them to bullying, created worries about their body image, and uh, Anybody ever experienced fear of missing out? So, technology and mental health. We're, we're living in a technological age. A lot of people would say we actually have a side of us now that's based in technology. And it has to do with the smartphone. The smartphone can be a tool that can also be something that can really hinder you. Um, 
80 to 300 times a day. That's how often they're recording. The average person is looking at it 80 times a day. On the other end, it's 300. And that's just, you know, ping, 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 you know, migration, uh, email, Facebook, whatever. Um, and there's actually a, a phenomenon called phantom vibration Okay, so that's where you do not have your phone with you, and you feel a physical sensation of a vibrating phone in your pocket. Okay? What that is, guys, what that is is a, is a rewiring of your brain, right? So you're feeling physical sensation, it's traveling up your brain, telling you that it's something that's not based on past experience. And so we've got to be really careful with that, you know? Um, I, the only reason I have a smartphone now is GPS. Honestly, I mean, personally, and I'm not advocating you to do this, but I, I don't have any social media. I do like to watch YouTube, which is social media. But um, I just, if I could go to the phone, I would. But I did the GPS. Uh, this woman's wearing uh, VR goggles, so there's not a whole lot of research on that. But you can see that. Can you see that image right there? <laughs> so I can't. I can't tell you if this. If these are. If these are valid images, but I think they're okay. So 2005. You got a crowd. You're at some type of event. I don't know what it is. And then another event, 2013. And you've got just. Smartphone screens everywhere. This guy's got the iPad. <laughs> I mean, if you go into a doctor's office, purposely do not pull your phone out and look around. You now people have to We're very, we're isolated. Okay, and I've heard some psychologists talk about isolation as an epidemic in our culture now. It was kind of scary to hear that. I didn't quite know to believe it or not, but I think I'm more leaning towards believing it because of stuff like this. Because we're, we're losing connection as a society. So we're becoming more isolated. And, you know, in the Bible, uh, Peter talked about, you know, the, uh, the devil is like a lion running around or something about. And if you think about what a lion does, isolates his prey, you know, or she does actually because the females do it. So she isolates the prey and then um, takes out the weakest link, basically. So we need to stay connected. If you guys are here today, you're you're trying to stay connected socially. You're in a group, hopefully you're in a small group, hopefully you're fellowshipping, you're coming to church on Sundays and Wednesdays, you're getting involved. Hopefully you guys are, you know, discipling relationships. I don't know how you feel about that, but <laughs> all right. So now we'll kind of talk about more of the problem area. You know, when mental illness turns to, or mental health turns to mental illness or dysfunction. And as a social worker, when we when we do assessments with people, we do what's called a biopsychosocial assessment. So we look at the whole person's life and kind of what has been going on with them in every area of their life. So I got two guys. I just want to kind of give you a breakdown of them. And uh, Eric and Steve. So Eric and Steve kind of grew up in the same neighborhood. They went to school together in elementary school. Uh, played sports together. 
Dark Rivers promoted in probably the last 12 or 16 months. So I'm really encouraged by that. Um, but, you know, we just got to be able to be open and talk about that stuff and to be able to empathize with each other. So when we look at mental illness, and I'll just read the definition there, it's uh, the product of a complex interaction among biological, psychological, social, and cultural role of any one of these major factors can be stronger or weaker depending on the disorder. And so that phrase, complex interaction, is really the key when you're talking about mental illness, uh, diagnosing it, treating it, living with it. It's not just a one area, you know, one problem area. Uh, and if you look at a lot of like mental health problems, you'll see that they don't know They have an idea of different areas that impact mental health and lead to mental illness. In the U.S., uh, the two major areas are depression and anxiety, and not in that order. Suicide is the leading cause of death. That's mostly that. Um, addiction is part of mental illness. Historically, as a nation, we kind of looked at it more as a moral failure. Versus a disease. And so we really kind of got to get into that mindset of looking at uh, addiction. And we're not going to really get into addiction a whole lot. But I'd be happy to answer questions after about addiction. Um, but addiction, um, you see it a lot. We call it co occurring disorders when someone has like a, you know, depression or anxiety and then they try to treat their anxiety with alcohol abuse. Alcohol abuse is more prevalent than benzo abuse for people who are suffering from anxiety disorders. And um, it can vary across culture. Roughly five Americans will meet criteria for a mental health disorder in their life. So depression. Uh, depression is very common. It's uh, also a very treatable uh, disorder. Occurs on a spectrum, so you can have uh, what's known as, known as uh, seasonal affective disorder, which is something that happens normally to people who live kind of closer to the poles um, geographically, uh, where there's less sunlight uh, during the day over the course of the year. Um, I actually experienced seasonal affective disorder when I moved to Georgia. Um, growing up in San Diego, I was outside all the time, sunlight. Activity. I came here and started my master's program. I was in a building for 12 hours a day. There were fluorescent lights. It was cold. You know, that was a great time. But that was a time-limited experience. And you can actually treat that with like UV lights. Um, going outside, get increased sunlight, changing your diet, exercising. Um, there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapy and antidepressant medication is probably the number one most effective means of treating severe depression. Uh, and several people in the Bible experience it in their life. So David in Psalm 42 says, Why are you downcast on my soul? Why so disturbed in Well, you're hoping God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. And then Elijah 
you're familiar with that story in 1 Kings 19, after he defeated the prophets of Baal, he was basically suicidal. I mean, he was in those passive suicidal ideation. We described as someone just having a feeling of wanting to die. Um, he wasn't actively suicidal. But it's something that people experience uh, across the world. It's actually the number one uh, mental health problem.
the Grief Recovery Institute, who's certified with them as a grief recovery specialist. And they have uh, what's called the Grief Recovery Method, uh, GRM. Um, I, I love that program because it's, what, it's an action-based program. What we really promote and believe is that we don't have to be victims of our grief. We don't have to live in this place of going years and years with unresolved grief. And that personally was something that I had uh, after the death of my dad because when I started using marijuana at 15 and drinking it, I was really just trying to have soup, pain, and awesome. But at 16 years old, you don't have that executive functioning where you can rationalize and understand the kind of personal feelings. So, um, I would say, you know, it wasn't until years into my sobriety that I realized, like, yeah, I'm still kind of blessing this. And so I got involved with that program and it literally helped me quite a bit to kind of tackle that unresolved grief. And what we really talk about in that program is completion of relationships. And not that you have to say goodbye to people, but that you're completing what you felt was left unsaid and undone, things that you would like to see done differently or better or have more experiences of with these people that you love. And so you have some, and I don't like to use the word closure because I'm not trying to have closure with my dad. I'm trying to get those things out there that have really been kind of Most people have experienced a crisis in their life. Uh, I work with the American Red Cross, doing disaster mental health work with them. And so what I'll do with them is I'll talk to people, mostly over the phone, who have like had their house burned down, or they were in a natural disaster, another natural disaster. And I'm talking to them, they might come into one of our shelters, we'll talk them through, or really trying to just help them connect with coping skills that they have. We're not trying to, you know, really put hands on. We're trying to help walk them through the crisis. Um, and the crisis could be defined as any, like, particular event and the, and the stress of that event exceeding our ability to cope with it. So we all have coping skills that we use. And if we, you know, we exhaust those coping skills in the midst of a crisis and we're not getting any benefit from it, we're likely to have some type of, and that's a really defined crisis. So when to seek help. Um, you know, again, being a part of the community in the church, we have people around us. You're most likely involved in a small group. Um, you've probably got someone that you, you talk to regularly or maybe the person who disciples you or you disciple someone. Um, and so that's a huge benefit because there's, there's some study done recently about people describing the number of intimate friends they have. And I think like 10 years ago, people would say, I have 10 close friends. And now they So we see that that isolation. We go back to those pictures of the cell phones in the crowd and you know how we silently are becoming 
number one uh, factor in determining healthy outcomes in therapy is the, the rapport between the therapist and the client. That's it, really. That's the major thing. So if you find someone who's confident, they're licensed, you have a great connection with them, and you have a belief that you're going to have positive change, you most likely have some positive outcomes. Points and then we can jump in the QA or I can run through like a handful more slides and then shorten our QA time. What do you guys want to do with that? Okay. So the good news, uh, a lot of stuff was bad news. Let's look at the good news. How are we going to live mentally healthy? So in the home, uh, in the singles ministry, uh, you probably have lots of roommates. One time when I lived in San Diego, I think I had seven roommates. We lived in this huge two-story house. It was not a healthy environment. But we could have done things to make it a little healthier. So you probably don't live with that many roommates. Um, that was just one particular case. But your home, guys, has to be a safe haven. Okay, you've got to have a safe place to go when you leave work or school or whatever you're doing. When you come back to that apartment or that house, it's got to be a place for you to unwind, to feel secure, to feel like I'm not going to get berated, I'm not going to you know, feel like I've got to get out of here. So how do you do that? Communication is key. Um, we had like weekly, uh, I lived in a few different single households, we would have weekly meetings where we talk through just different stuff. Are we having problems? Are we buying groceries? You know, just so it, it kind of put the expectations out there. We were able to kind of diffuse some things before they really got, you know, out of hand. Um, family history. Some of us grew up in some not-so-great living environments, okay? And so we can take that stuff into, you know, where we live now. And we can take that into marriage, into our house when we have kids. And so... Really, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, knowing yourself, knowing kind of where you're coming from, knowing your tendencies, what triggers you, how can I, uh, you know, come out of this discussion of not having these unwanted emotions or what have you. And so really, it's, um, you know, an easier way or a more productive way to create a healthy living. Uh, you guys probably know what that is. This is living mentally healthy at work. And I put that slide up there because do you live to work or do you work to live? And so I think there was, oh, did Paula do a class on boundaries? Yeah. Okay. So and I like that. There was a little subheading that said, not a woman's class. So hopefully there were some brothers that jumped in there too. But having healthy boundaries at work, and you got to make a decision. My. Who am I working for? You know, am I serving God? Am I working for God? Am I working for my boss? Am I retirement plan? You know, how am I putting 40 hours of work in or am I putting 60 hours of work in? Some of you guys work in certain industries where certain times of the year you're really kind of at, you know, 
you're at a commitment with your job and you really have to work some abnormal hours, and I understand that. But all things being equal, you've really got to work, prioritize creating healthy boundaries in the workplace in terms of what you put in, in terms of your workload, and then also how you interact with your coworkers. Some of your coworkers are not doing so well. And you might think of one particular coworker that might pop up in your mind right now. And so this person is not doing okay? And so it's good that that alarm is kind of going off because now you need to determine what you need to do to create some healthier boundaries in that workplace to where that person is not going to have an in impact on you. Um, you can create some safe space. You know, if you see per people fleeing your work, your workplace, like finding new jobs, calling out sick a lot, complaining a lot, gossiping, that's a toxic workplace. So, you know, I'm not telling you to go get another job, but there's certain things that you can do to, you know, because we got, we're called to, you know, be our focus, right? So we want to have an influence on our coworkers. We want to be a positive light in our work environment. But sometimes, guys, you got to insulate yourself and protect yourself from people who are just, they're not with God. They're not walking with God. You know, they're, they're struggling. And the way you see that manifested is in their interaction with people. Um, in the church. You know, some people have some really stressful experiences in the church. And you might be having some now. I don't know. But we do know what the scriptures are called, calling us to do. And I love just the clarity, especially in the New Testament, about the one another relationships. Guys, we're here to love each other and to be unified, right? You've got to have this mindset that we're here to build each other up as we work towards being perfected, not without fault, but being completed in Christ. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing in God's kingdom. That's what we're doing in the church. And so a third of those scriptures are focused on unity, and a third are focused on love. Forgiveness and grace. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And forgiveness is not just a thought process, it's an action step. So the reason we're talking about forgiveness is that it typically is associated with anger. And chronic anger can become problematic. Chronic anger can actually affect your stress response uh, in your brain, and it can alienate you from other people. And so uh, I'd encourage you that if you got a beef or a problem beef, a problem with uh, a brother or a sister, I would encourage you to call that person today or talk to them today if they're here. Pull them aside. Say, hey, I love you. I'm having these feelings. I don't want to be funky. How can we resolve this? You know, that goes a long way, guys. And that has all to do with humility. Um, the last one on grace is, for if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness 
reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So grace, guys, is, I think, something that we don't focus on. I think we could focus on a little bit more. The idea of reigning in life through Christ doesn't happen without the provision of grace. And so if we're holding on to something and we're not willing to be gracious with one another, we're going to have trouble. We're going to feel alienated from people. We're going to distance ourselves. Um, and we're not going to be connected. And I know this is a fast one mental health. So to me, exercise, diet, and sleep are like top three. Okay, exercise is incredible. Exercise is, is prevention and treatment at the same time. So when you exercise, your brain releases endorphins that improve mood. There's so much research on it, I couldn't even begin to cite it. Um, if you think for whatever reason I can't exercise, I'm, I'm limited in that way, um, find other ways that you can we're not necessarily having to exhaust the rigorous exercise. Talk to your doctor. Major contributor to mood regulation. So the side effects, all positive. Uh, here comes the sun. 15 minutes of exposure to sunlight has been shown to improve mood. Uh, it's very clear in the data. You can, if you have a sunny day and you work in an office, like me, I will typically open my lunch in front of my computer and like do a note and like throw down a sandwich really fast. And what I need to do is get out of my office, walk around the building, and just get some sunlight. It promotes the production of vitamin D in your system and it promotes the uh, <laughs> so, it's ironic that the standard American diet acronym is SAD. That's what it is. So, standard American diet being refined sugar, simple carbs, uh, processed foods, uh, basically what most of our diet consists of. If you look at some of those statistics up there, uh, we're not doing well as a culture in terms of our diet. And I'm not going to promote any particular diet plan or way to eat, but the standard American diet is killing us. It's not doing us any favors medically, and it's not really helping us in our mental health either. There's links between diet patterns and depression. Well, making sure it's depression. One more minute and we're done. Alright, so guys, I'm sorry in terms of the time. Obviously you can see that I love talking about this topic. If you have any questions, feel free to um, grab me after the class. Here's a few resources. And I really want again want to thank you for just coming in. I know you had choices this last time. So thank you again. Thank you.